Welcome to This Week in Video Games episode 97. My name is Tom Kershaw and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. Well this week I've been playing a whole load of Destiny 2's The Witch Queen DLC, finding out all the secrets of the throne world and checking out the latest expansion from Bungie and all it has to offer. I've also been exploring the lands between in Elden Ring from developer From Software. Now all that, plus we've got news of Pokemon Gen 9 coming out later on in the year. So it's a busy show, so let's get to it. Welcome to the show everyone, I hope you're well and you're having a good week. Now I'm good this week and over the past couple of days, you know, the world has gone a little bit crazy. So I wanted to send out some love and support for all those in Ukraine right now. But back into the world of video games, the Pokemon company announced that Pokemon Scarlet and Violet would be coming out later on in the year. Now so soon too after Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl remakes, plus Pokemon Legends Arceus. But later on in the show, I'll be checking out everything that we know so far about the Gen 9 entry coming to us later on in the year to Nintendo Switch. But before we get into it, it'd be great if you could leave a review over on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the podcast get some more eyes on it. So I do have a link in the podcast description to make it nice and easy to do a review. So if you like the show and you want to leave a review, I'd really, really appreciate it. Plus, I'll read out a review on a future episode of the podcast. And also, if you want to support the show further... Check out This Week in Video Games on Patreon and check out all the Patreon benefits. Okay, that's my waffly intro out of the way, so let's get into what I've been playing this week. Well, this week I've been playing a couple of games, so Elden Ring and Destiny 2's Witch Queen expansion. So my love for Destiny is well documented, and not so much on the podcast, but if you follow the This Week in Video Games YouTube channel, you're regularly going to see Destiny 2 guides, news, and also features too. Well, today I'm going to go into a couple of Destiny-related topics. I'm going to cover the Witch Queen expansion in a non-spoiler way. So if you want to get the lowdown on the latest from Bungie without being spoiled on the story details, then this one is for you. Then I'm going to be going into full spoiler territory for the Witch Queen and looking at the end of the game, plus what it means, and where Destiny is going to go to next in the franchise. Well, I've also been playing Elden Ring, the massive new release from From Software. Now, I'm not a massive From Software fanboy, or wasn't previously, but this one I think might convert me. This is a huge open world, it's full of adventures and secrets, and of course tough boss battles. I'm going to get into my first impressions first up on the show, and then later on I'll get into Destiny 2 and the Witch Queen expansion. But as mentioned, first up let's check out my first impressions of Elden Ring. Well, Elden Ring has arrived to a crescendo of rave reviews, with its rich open world, lack of hand-holding, great sense of discovery, and the game has taken what The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild did and has taken it to the next level. Now I've put about 10 hours into the game so far and I'm really, really enjoying my time. And today I'm going to bring my first impressions of Elden Ring. So I did want to say up front, I'm not a veteran of From Software games. I played some Sekiro, Dark Souls and Demon Souls. I'm very bad at these games and haven't really fallen in love with that style of gameplay. And I was hoping that Elden Ring would be the game where I turn the corner and finally master a game from From Software. Well, in Elden Ring, you start out in the lands between in a cave. You pick your class, and they range from a vagabond, a warrior, mage, samurai, and many more as well. And you run through a short tutorial and then step out into the beautiful yet dangerous vast open world. 
And this is a world full of discovery. You know, unlike other open world games, you aren't explicitly directed anywhere. You know, the lands between are yours to discover by yourself. So when you start, you learn a few basic mechanics. The tutorial is actually very easy to miss. And Elden Ring as a game doesn't really go out of its way to explain the mechanics and features to you. For example, when you start out, you meet a ghostly character in a chair, and they simply say, take the plunge. Well, the first time I played through the start, I ignored this and went out into the open world, and I met a character on a horse. So I'd later find out this was the terrifying Tree Sentinel, a mini-boss that roams the open world, licking his lips for newcomers to the lands between, to teach them a very harsh lesson in life and death but special emphasis on the death. Now, everything in this world is going to kill you quickly too if you haven't prepared yourself. So I switched up characters and started again, and this time I found the tutorial, so it runs you through the basic mechanics of light attacks, heavy attacks, using your shield if you have one, and also dodging. Well then it's out into the open world where you find your first grace point, and these are similar to bonfires in other Souls-like games, where you can rest, pass time, level up and learn magic spells amongst other things. You know, grace points are dotted all over the map and they're useful tools for fast travelling as well as powering up your main character through the collection of runes and then investing those runes into various attributes. Well that is essentially the underlying gameplay loop in Elden Ring. You explore, discover, battle and gather runes. The more runes you get the more you can pump into different attributes and levelling up various attributes allows you to take advantage of different skills and abilities in the game. So strength and dexterity allow you to use bigger and better weapons, whereas intellect and faith allow you to learn more magic spells. Now I'm still very early on and I'm discovering my playstyle, and I've got loads more to learn about builds and how to spec my character. Now I learned very early on in the game you have to plan and prepare for battles. Going in there and trying to take on multiple enemies at the same time is a quick way to die. So in the very starting point of the game, there's something called the Gatefront Ruins, and this is a very good microcosm of Elden Ring. There's roughly 10 or 12 enemies here with a powerful enemy patrolling in the middle. And if you're a skilled player, you could probably roll in there, parry, dodge, and take them out pretty quickly. For me though, I had to sneak in and take out enemies individually, either drawing them out one by one or sneaking up behind them and stabbing them in the back. Yeah, once you've removed the danger, there's some caves to explore and also some secret loot to acquire. So while Elden Ring doesn't explicitly tell you where to go, there is a big looming castle in the background and it does look very tempting. Now, so far, I haven't been inside, and I have ventured near the outskirts, but not yet inside that castle. I've decided to take my time and explore pretty much everything outside in the surrounding areas. Well, there's a couple of good locations to visit before you get too far into things. So just north of where you start is the Church of Ella, and here you're going to find a vendor who sells a couple of useful items, including a crafting kit and a torch. Well, the torch is useful if you want to explore caves, and when you're on your way to the church, make sure to avoid that tree sentinel, He's that big guy on the horse with a tendency to eliminate you very, very quickly. So the Gatefront Ruins are really good because of the map fragment, as well as the Ash of War weapon ability. So when you start out in Elden Ring, the map is covered in clouds, and you have to find all the map fragments to uncover the map. And these are located next to a big pillar. We've also got the Grace Point near the Gatefront Ruins, and once you're here, you get a visit from a character called Melina, who will give you access to Torrent. That is your horse-ish mount. I would say horse, but he or she seems to have horns like a goat, plus he can double jump. So Torrent is one of the most useful things to get early on in the game, as you can then travel around the lands between nice and quickly. Now be careful though, because there's also enemies on horses too, and usually they have massive swords. Well, the combat in Elden Ring feels similar to other Souls games. 
Timing is everything, and it's pretty tough, but ultimately very satisfying when you take down whatever is standing in front of you. There's plenty of variety with melee attacks with swords, axes, claws, daggers, halberds, there's something here for everybody. Magic is also very useful in the Elden Ring with plenty of spells, plus they give you good range if you want to stand back from fights. While the combat may feel familiar, exploration feels completely different to other Souls games. You know, direction in this game is very subtle, but mostly you're left to find your own way in the open world. As you make your way to the big looming castle, there's a field full of massive trolls. You know, they must be 20 foot tall, and they pack a real punch with their fists. Not only that, when you've got their energy down about half, they also get fed up with fighting fair and bring out their massive swords. Well, another good location to check out very early in the game is the pond in the middle. You know, be wary of this, though, as a dragon lives there. So if you do want to explore the pond, just make sure you keep your eyes peeled. You know, the dragon can be beaten early game, but he does breathe fire, and he could cook you in your boots if you're not careful. Well, the scale and the scope of this game amazes me every time I open up the game for a session. Now, given the lack of direction that you're given, it's up to you to make your own quest log and define your own experience. For some players, this has meant keeping notes in a pad, or you can keep your own digital notes, which I would recommend given you can search for keywords, plus the naming convention in Elden Ring means a few similar sounding names. There's a good chance you're going to speak to one character, then forget about them as you move on to the next location, and there's no in-game quest log to keep track of these things. Now, from a discovery point of view, this can be a blessing and a curse. You know, on one hand, it makes the discovery in the game thrilling, you know, surprises around every corner, while on the other hand, if you're someone who gets overwhelmed by choice, this system may not gel well with you. you know, one of the most challenging elements I've found with the game isn't the bosses or the enemies, it's maintaining focus on my goal. You know, the world is full of interesting distractions, things to discover, secrets to find, and getting teleported into hellish locations full of semi-invincible enemies with murder on their minds. And the sense of wonder and discovery when you find a new area, scour it from head to toe to find chests filled with loot, and more often than not, guardians aren't going to be too pleased that you're there. So a good example of this is when I made my way over the bridge south from the starting area, I came across a village full of zombie-like creatures, and I found a chest guarded by rats, one huge rat, and they went back to the village only to be greeted by the former villagers with fire lasers from their eyes. So I'm roughly about 10 hours into Elden Ring at the moment, and I don't really feel like I've even scratched the surface of the game yet. So I'm yet to face off against the main boss, having spent most of my time exploring, trying to level up before I get there. I have found some mystical weapons, battled trolls on horseback, died to a dragon, fought an undead wizard in a dark forest, and discovered friendly NPCs hidden in caves. Well, Elden Ring is a game that I'm thinking about when I'm not playing it, but I do have to get over a couple of roadblocks. I'm still dying too much, so I need to learn how to parry and move around a battle more effectively. I'm also under-leveled, so taking on even minor bosses feels more like a chore. I've got plenty more work to do, but I'm not put off. So I'm wandering around the world at my own pace, and at this rate, I'm going to be playing this game for about 100 hours. Now, whereas I've fallen off previous From Software titles, I'm determined to finish this one. Now, I can't recommend Elden Ring enough, and if you're remotely interested in playing it, I definitely think you should check it out. Well, that is it for my first impressions of Elden Ring. Really, really fantastic game, and I can't wait to jump in once again. But to follow up on the first impressions, I did want to bring you some Elden Ring news, 
So first of all, we've got a story here by Victoria Kennedy from Eurogamer. So Victoria says, Elden Ring earned the biggest non-FIFA or Call of Duty video game launch in the UK. For more of a recent comparison, its launch sales figures were 2.5 times greater than those of Horizon Forbidden West, according to data via gamesindustry.biz. Now, these figures reveal that over 68% of Elden Ring sales came from digital downloads, with PC and Xbox consoles being the biggest digital platforms, and roughly 85% of Elden Ring sales on Xbox were downloaded, while the digital sales were about 73% of PC players. Meanwhile, PlayStation users saw an almost 50-50 split between Elden Ring's digital and physical sales. And with Elden Ring now sitting comfortably at the top of this week's charts, Horizon Forbidden West now takes third position in the GSD UK digital sales and second in the combined top 10. Now, we always knew Elden Ring was going to be big, but perhaps not this big. And I've got another story as well from Wesley LeBlanc. This one comes from Game Informer, and this one says Elden Ring's Steam number is nearly six times greater than From Software's all-time high. So Wesley says Elden Ring is finally out after years of anticipation, and it seems that the hype that's been building since the announcement in 2019 has paid off from From Software. And that's because less than 24 hours after release, Elden Ring's Steam numbers, courtesy of SteamDB, are already nearly six times greater than From Software's previous all-time high. So that previous high resides with Dark Souls 3, which is a peak player base of 129,975. Elden Ring's current all-time high is a whopping 764,835 players, which is roughly 5.9 times higher than that of Dark Souls 3. So it's an impressive feat, but not one that is necessarily surprising. Now, Elden Ring received a 10 out of 10 from Game Informer, and we're not the only outlet to give it such high praise. In fact, the official Elden Ring Twitter account posted an image with some of the 10 out of 10 reviews the game has received, and it's so wild that it almost seems like a Photoshop. You know, it isn't. Elden Ring is just that good. For reference, here is a breakdown of From Software's all-time Steam DB numbers for its previous Souls-like titles released on PC. So we got Elden Ring top with 764,000. We got Sekiro next with 125,000. Dark Souls 3 with 129,000. Dark Souls 2 with 79,000. And then Dark Souls Remastered at 24,000. So another thing to keep in mind that these player counts are only on PC. There's still loads of people playing on Xbox and PlayStation consoles, which means there's likely millions more playing from software's latest title at this very moment. Well, that is it for the Elden Ring news for the moment and my first impressions, but I'd love to hear what you think about Elden Ring. Let me know down there in the comments. Let me know on Twitter. You can follow me at TWIVG Podcast on Twitter. You can tweet at me for your impressions of Elden Ring, or you can get in contact via Patreon at patreon.com forward slash thisweekinvideogames. Well, I'm really having a good time with Elden Ring, and I can't wait to jump back in. I'm definitely going to be playing it over the next couple of weeks, and I'll see how far I get. Now, I'm going to be back on a future podcast for an update, and also a review once I've completed it. Well, that is it for all the Elden Ring news and first impressions at the moment. But next up, let's give you my review in progress of Destiny 2 The Witch Queen. Well, the latest expansion from Bungie has been released, and it's a big one. It's The Witch Queen. So this is a story that's been building for years and Destiny 2 fans have been drinking it in over the last couple of weeks. And I've put in countless hours into The Witch Queen so far, and today I'm going to bring you my review in progress. This is also a spoiler-free discussion, so if you haven't played The Witch Queen campaign, then I won't go into story spoiler details. 
Well, let's start out at the beginning with the campaign. So one of the biggest changes Bungie has implemented here is the introduction of the legendary campaign, which increases the difficulty, but not an insane amount. Over the past few years, Bungie has been ramping up the difficulty on the PvE content with Legend and Master Nightfalls, Lost Sectors, and also Grandmaster Nightfalls 2. But this is the first time we've had this treatment for the campaign, and you have to say it's by far the best campaign that Bungie has put together for Destiny 2, and it's better by a country mile compared to all the other campaigns. Now, over the past year, Savathun, the sister of the Taken King Oryx, has been waging a campaign against us by infiltrating the last city and wreaking havoc. Now, she nearly caused a civil war in the last city by infecting residents with a tune called Savathun's Song, and this turned many of the last city against one another due to a conflict between the Elixni and the humans. So Marasov, the Awoken Queen, returned to us last season to uncover Savathun's plan and imprisoned her, only for Savathun to escape at the end of the season. So in the Witch Queen campaign, we pick up right up where things left off, and we're headed to Mars. That's been mysteriously returned, although it's been changed. You know, the Cabal are setting up massive cannons there, and they have them trained on something that isn't us. You know, they're pointed up towards Savathun's massive throne world ship, and that has arrived in our solar system. Now, we soon cannon ourselves onto the ship, only to find that the Hive has somehow gained access to the light, the space magic that powers our abilities, and essentially gives us life through our ghosts. You know, how did they get the light? You know, surely they must have stolen it somehow, and it's up to us to find out what's happened. You know, what ensues after this opening is a blockbuster campaign over a series of eight missions, and it takes us all over the throne world, plus the planets and the moons. You know, Bungie has been very generous with their upgrade materials, constantly giving them throughout the campaign, allowing us to level up as we go. Previously, in Destiny campaigns, we'd have to stop the campaign and go and level up somewhere else for a little while, but the campaign was very generous with its rewards. You know, all of our gear has been brought up to the new minimum of 1350, which meant we could use anything to kick off the campaign. However, you're quickly into the leveling grind with blue items and new armour and weapons. The legendary campaign mixes things up with difficult but not impossible encounters, plus there's a number of set pieces throughout the campaign, with returning classic characters from Destiny 1, nods to boss battles from raids gone by, and the whole thing culminates in an entertaining, tough boss fight at the end of the story. We also get a tantalising peek at what's next for the Destiny 2 story in one of the most interesting cutscenes we've seen in the franchise history. Now, the story throughout the cutscenes and the character development were absolutely fantastic, and we've got a few new characters introduced, and our perceptions of existing characters are also thrown into disarray. The story twists and turns, and in the end, you don't really know how it's going to pan out until it does. You know, this is the culmination of a huge year for storytelling in the Destiny 2 franchise. Beyond Light was a turning point for the narrative team, and season over season, the team at Bungie has been producing some fantastic storytelling, even though that much of Beyond Light's gameplay fixes were focusing on the issues introduced by Stasis. Now, the Witch Queen campaign was great storytelling, great mechanics, and it stands on its own two feet as a great shooter campaign, and it's definitely the best we've had in Destiny history. You know, once you finish the campaign, much like expansions before, things open up with new activities introduced on the throne world, plus you've got a few exotic quests and a ton of loot to hunt down and try. Yeah, one element of this new loot is a new archetype of weapon called the Glaive. Yeah, this is a combination of things, it's a melee weapon, you can shoot at range, plus you can hold up a shield. Yeah, it's a first person weapon, unlike the other melee weapons we've got in the game. And I wasn't really expecting to like the Glaive very much looking at the preview trailer, 
but I can happily say that the glaive now is a staple weapon of my current loadout, and I've really been enjoying my time with it. Yeah, Bungie mentioned during a recent Vidoc that during development this thing was nicknamed the Murder Stick, and you can really, really see why. This thing just kills everything in its path. You know, rather than just a simple poke with a regular glaive, you can combo enemies, plus you can shoot a decent damage shot from distance, and also you've got these shielding capabilities too. Well, we're introduced to the new glaive weapon through another new feature in the Witch Queen, one that we've been asking about for some time, and this is called Weapon Crafting. So you can access the relic at the enclave near the throne world, and there you can shape and reshape weapons. You know, to be able to craft weapons, you first have to collect the weapon pattern and gather a bunch of materials. Level up that weapon to unlock the perks and traits, and then you can craft the weapon that you want. Now, I've only really interacted with this feature on the surface level at the moment, but it looks like it's going to change the game significantly. You know, early in the game we craft our new legendary glaive weapon, then after the campaign you can also craft the new exotic submachine gun, and that one is called the Osteostriga. But do be aware, you only get that if you purchase the deluxe edition of the game. Now, I've got some serious problems with my vault. I went into the Witch Queen expansion with about 350 out of 500 items, and I'm already running out of space. Now, from what I understand, weapon crafting was supposed to help with the vault space, but I'm finding the opposite at the moment. It's clogging up more space than it's helping, but it is early days for the new system. So it's a fairly new and complicated system to get your head around in the context of Destiny 2, but so far I really like it and you can see the potential. I think we're conditioned in Destiny 2 to find weapons and not craft them, so it's definitely going to be interesting to see how this goes. Another major update in the Witch Queen was Void 3.0, and this is a complete overhaul for our Void subclass, and they move it into the same subclass type as Stasis. So we've got now much more freedom to pick and choose the combinations through our aspects and our fragments, and thankfully most of these are available to us when we start the campaign, and gone are the tedious quests to unlock new ones season over season. Now I don't think I ever finished all characters' aspects and fragments of my other characters in Beyond Light for Stasis, I would love to see Bungie go back and retrospectively unlock all the stasis abilities for us. Void 3.0 is great, and this led me to pick a Warlock to start the Witch Queen, and I haven't been let down. You know, Void Explosions seem to be the flavour of the month at the moment, and with the Warlock, you know, I've got grenades, class abilities, and rifts that can help me out in battle. Void 3.0 has brought the space magic back to Destiny 2, you know, without it overwhelming the sandbox like Stasis did. You know, Beyond Light brought Stasis with it, but for many players it ruined the game for them, with many top players leaving. So in the post-launch updates in Beyond Light, they were spent nerfing Stasis and rebalancing the sandbox as PvP was almost ruined. Now, Void 3.0 doesn't seem to have had that effect, which is really, really good news for all of us. You know, Bungie has bought their A-game with the new loot as well. We've got the Throne World weapons, we've got the new World loot pool, new exotics, plus a whole bunch of exotic armour pieces too. The Throne World weapons are really, really good. I really like the look of them, and a few of them stand out, like the Forensic Nightmare submachine gun, and also the Father Sin sniper. The new World pool loot weapons have the ridiculous Funnel Web submachine gun, which is really very much like the old Recluse from seasons gone by. Plus, we've also got Crate, a really, really good new auto-rifle. You know, it feels like there's something here for everyone, and the sandbox feels really fresh. And with exotics, we've got the Osteostriga, a new submachine gun that fires toxic damage, and that could be a nod to an upcoming subclass in the Destiny 2 future. Grand Overture is a Cabal grenade launcher, and that makes you feel like a Cabal Colossus. Plus, we've got the Parasite grenade launcher, which shoots hive worms. 
Finally, we've got the Vow of the Disciple raid this weekend. So it's currently the eve of the new raid, which is why this is a review in progress and not a review. Now, I can't wait to jump into the raid. And it's always the pinnacle activity of the Destiny 2 PvE experience. Plus, we're going to get a whole raft of new weapons and armor from that as well. And it's highly likely the world will change in some way after the raid if the last couple of expansions is anything to go by. Well, Destiny 2's The Witch Queen expansion has been a huge success from my point of view. There was a lot of pressure on the team to deliver, and I think that Bungie has done an absolutely fantastic job. Yeah, Bungie has put out some great expansions in the past, including The Taken King in 2015, followed by Forsaken in 2018. However, back then, Bungie had the help from Activision, and this is Bungie doing it on their own. And I think they've managed to create something pretty special. Well, The Witch Queen was developed by Bungie and also published by Bungie, originally released on the 22nd of February 2022, and it's available for PC, PlayStation 4 and 5, Xbox Series S and X, and Xbox One, and also Google Stadia 2. Well, that is it for my review in progress of Destiny 2 The Witch Queen, and I would love to hear what you think about it. So are you a long-term fan, and did it live up to your expectations, or are you a returning player checking out the latest expansion from Bungie? As I mentioned before, you can hit me up on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. Let me know what you think of Destiny 2 The Witch Queen, or you can get in contact at patreon.com forward slash this week in video games, and I'll read out your comments on a later episode of the podcast. Well, that is it for my review in progress of Destiny 2's Witch Queen. Next up, let's have a look at the all-platform charts. Well, number 10 this week, it's Grand Theft Auto The Trilogy. That's up four places from last week's number 14. And number 9 this week, down one place from last week's number 8, it's Minecraft. And number 8 this week, it's Animal Crossing New Horizons, down two places from last week's number 6. And number 7 this week, it's Dying Like 2 Stay Human, down four places from last week's number 3. And number 6 this week, it's Call of Duty Vanguard, at one place from last week's number 7. And number 5 this week, it's FIFA 22, and that one is holding steady at last week's number 5. Holding steady again at number 4, it's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. And number three, it's Pokemon Legends Arceus. That's down one place from last week's number two. Then at number two, it's Horizon Forbidden West, down one place from last week's number one. And a new entry at number one, it's Elden Ring. Well, congratulations to the team at From Software, Elden Ring. Absolutely fantastic, as I went through in my first impressions earlier on in the podcast. As you can see, it's had an absolutely blockbuster couple of weeks. And I think this thing is going to be talked about for years and years to come. It's an absolutely marvellous game. Well, that is it for the all-platform charts, but next up, let's have a look at the end of the Witch Queen expansion for Destiny 2, and also where the franchise is headed next. So the Witch Queen campaign was hands down the best campaign that Bungie has ever put together, and if you're not clued into years of lore, then the story may have gone over your head. Well, today I'm going to run through the story details of the Witch Queen campaign, what happened, plus what it means for the future of Destiny 2, concerning Savathun and The Witness as we march towards the next big expansion, and that one is Destiny 2 Lightfall. Well, warning, this is going to be full of spoilers, so if you haven't finished the Witch Queen campaign and you don't want to be spoiled, then do click away now. So consider this your spoiler warning, but if you did play and you want to join the discussion for what's next, then do stay with me. Well, the tagline for the Witch Queen expansion was Survive the Truth, and one interpretation of that is the truth is that Savathun didn't steal the light at all. She was given it by the Traveller, just like we were. The Traveller chose Savathun, and a true believer like Zavala, 
are really having a hard time dealing with it. The Witch Queen campaign was a bombastic adventure through Savathun's throne world, playing on the mystery of how did Savathun get the light? So we assume that she must have stolen it, and with the help of Ikora Ray and the gang, we set off to find out what happened. You know, one aspect of the campaign is learning more about one of our most dangerous enemies of all time, and that is Savathun herself. Well, Savathun came from a planet called Fundament. You know, it was an unremarkable planet inhabited by a species called the Krill, you know, which Savathun was a part of before a huge transformation brought on by the darkness. You know, Savathun didn't always go by that name. Previously, in a fragile Krill state, she went by the name of Sathona, and she had a sister and a brother. You know, her father was the Osmian king, and he was driven insane by prophecies of a coming apocalypse, fed to him by his worm. He was eventually assassinated, which led to Sathona and her siblings fleeing from danger, only to be led underground by the worm. Sathona made a pact with the worm to become the hive, and they would be granted great power in exchange for infinite murder, death and destruction. However, the worm lied to the Krill siblings, and there wasn't an oncoming disaster. In fact, the Traveller had arrived at their planet, and they could have been taken in by the light. But the witness persuaded Sathona and her siblings to do the bidding of the darkness through the worm before tricking them into this miserable life. So at the end of Season of the Lost, Savathun broke out of her crystalline prison encased there by the Queen of the Awoken, Marasov. And we thought that she'd escaped, but actually she was wounded and made her way towards the Traveller on the outskirts of the Lost City. So Savathun died there speaking to the Traveller not far from the Lost City. Then a ghost called Imaru came down from the Traveller and resurrected Savathun as a guardian, therefore choosing Savathun in the name of the light. Yeah, we were led to believe all along that Savathun had stolen the light, as how could the Traveller choose Savathun and the Hive, given their appetite for death and destruction? So this is what Zavala just cannot wrap his head around. As Savathun was brought back as a guardian, her memories were removed, much like happens to us when we are brought back as guardians from humans. Savathun must have known she was going to die, as throughout the Witch Queen campaign, we're travelling all around the throne world gathering and collecting relics, and therefore Savathun's memories, allowing Savathun to essentially restore her memories to a previous state. Now, Savathun removed her worm through Marasov, then was given the light by the Traveller, and then restored her own memories by tricking us into doing her bidding. It's all pretty clever stuff. Ultimately, we kill Savathun in the final boss fight in the Witch Queen campaign, but before we could destroy her ghost Imaru, the Traveller escapes, seemingly with Imaru, leaving the prospect of Savathun coming back at a later date. You know, after the final scenes with Savathun at the end of the campaign, we do get a new cutscene with who we can assume to be the Witness. Now, this is a new, dangerous enemy, tall and sleek, with a different design to anything we've seen in the Destiny universe before. The Witness appears to be in control of the Pyramid ships, what we've known to be the darkness until this moment in time. You know, during the campaign, we got the revelation that the Witness had fed lies to a young Sathona and tricked them into becoming the Hive. The Witness has been operating behind the scenes for a thousand years and now appears fed up with the Traveller and the battle against the Light. They reveal a huge fleet of Pyramid ships and are seemingly on their way to meet us in battle, which is going to most likely commence in Lightfall or perhaps the final shape, which is the next couple of Destiny expansions. We don't really know much about the Witness yet, but given the build-up to Savathun took at least three years, I would imagine we're going to learn a lot about them in the coming weeks and months. You know, the Vow of the Disciple raid is this weekend, and it's probably going to be our first clue, as the raid is set inside a pyramid. 
You know, whether we get to see a fight against something similar to The Witness, you know, that is yet to be seen. However, I don't imagine we're going to see a new race of enemies in Destiny 2 until we get to the next expansion. You know, they could, in theory, use the raid as a teaser, but we're just going to have to wait and see what happens in the raid. Well, The Witness looks like they have a fleet of pyramid ships, plus they've been sending out confusing messages. You know, salvation has always been the message that they've sent to us. This was in the cutscene at the end of the Shadowkeep DLC, where we met a version of ourselves. Then again, in Season of Arrivals, where we had some form of contact with the darkness, although Savathun was trying to obscure the messages being sent, and we worked with Eris Morn to try and decode the messages. In Beyond Light, the darkness gave us stasis, and also weapons. What the Witness and the darkness are playing at isn't really clear at this stage. Post-campaign, we do get some more story info related to the worm, and the Witness manipulating Savathun. Yeah, we have Savathun's worm, and we go through the Parasite Exotic quest to get the new grenade launcher, so Morosov wants to learn details from the worm, and the Vanguard, well, they're stunned with the knowledge that Savathun was given the light by the Traveller. So the directions are clear, though. We must avoid another collapse brought on by the darkness, and the next major story beat is going to be in Lightfall, and that sounds very ominous for all of us Lightbearers. So I would expect plenty of story-building moments over the next 12 months to that moment, yeah, we don't have an exact timeline for Lightfall just yet, but I would place bets on sometime in 2023. So Bungie isn't tied to a yearly release schedule since they went solo from Activision. However, they did recently jump back into a partnership with Sony, but given they want to retain their independence, hopefully this means also release timelines too. So in terms of what's next, I think this means a few things. So we're very likely to get a new enemy race to fight in Lightfall, perhaps the same race as The Witness. These tall, thin beings look unlike anything that we've seen in Destiny 2 before, and it's past time for us to get a new enemy race. The last time we had something close to this was the Scorn, although they almost feel like modified Fallen. So we have had extensions to various races like the Vex in Beyond Light with the addition of Wyverns, but it'd be really, really good to get a whole new race of enemies. Also, I don't think Savathun is dead. She may be dead at the moment, but given her ghost still exists, as long as her body is around, which I understand the Vanguard now has, then she could come back. Now, I do believe we're on a journey of making a grand alliance to face off against the Witness and their armies of the darkness, so we're already in a pact with the Cabal and Keitel, and we're recent friends with Elixni and Mithrax. Now, I can't imagine teaming up with the Vex given their time-travelling death machines, and also the Scorn appear to be aligned with the darkness given we're fighting them this season. Well, that appears to be the build-up for the next few months and maybe years as we head into the Lightfall and the final shape. So we're laying the groundwork for the battle with Light versus the Darkness, and I am 100% here for it. Also, interestingly, post-campaign, we have Savathun appearing in front of us in the Altar of Reflection activity, and this is a puzzle-like encounter where we have to solve a riddle. Then fight a little bit, and finally Savathun communicates with us via a vision. So this happens week over week, and Savathun is giving us two lies and two truths. So first week included, Mercury, Io and Titan are in my care. The witness return Mars to your solar system. The power to move worlds will soon be yours. And the taken king will rise again. So some really, really interesting stuff there. So Mercury, Io and Titan are in my care. That's from Savathun's perspective. I'm not really sure about that one. And the witness returned Mars to your solar system. That one seems like it could be likely. The power to move worlds will soon be yours. Really, really interesting stuff. And that could be a nod to the future. And the Taken King will rise again. Well, there are rumours that the Taken King raid is coming back. It will be really, really interesting to see if they can weave that into the narrative. 
So it does appear as if we're going to get new messages each week, and this week include the message, Your destiny lies beyond the solar system. So this could mean ultimately leaving our local system, one that we've been inhabiting since Destiny 2's launch back in 2014. Bungie has said that Lightfall and the final shape would be the conclusion of the current saga in Destiny 2, but I really don't think that's the end of the Destiny 2 story. I think we're about to venture across the stars. Well, that is it for what happens at the end of the Witch Queen campaign, and also what I think's next for the Destiny 2 franchise. I'd love to hear what you think about the Witch Queen story. Hit me up on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast, or you can contact me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash This Week in Video Games. I would love to hear what you thought of the Witch Queen story, and also what you think is going to be next for Destiny 2. So I've really, really enjoyed playing the Witch Queen over the last couple of weeks. Really, really good fun. Well, next up, let's check out everything we know about the upcoming Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, Generation 9 in the Pokemon franchise. And massive thank you to Games Radar for this information. Well, the Pokemon Company and Game Freak truly surprised us all with the announcement of Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. You know, the February Pokemon Presents showcase gave us all manner of updates on the current releases, including a new Daybreak content for Pokemon Legends Arceus, but of course the best was saved for last. A reveal trailer closed out the show with our very first look at Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. You know, the upcoming adventure will take us to the next generation of what looks set to be in a real evolution of the much-loved series, with sunny skies, towns, big open areas, and critters physically roaming out in the wilds. There's plenty of reasons to get excited. Yeah, we were surprised in more ways than one when Pokemon Scarlet and Violet reveal trailer landed. Not only do we get to go on a new adventure in the world of Pokemon, but we won't even have to wait that long to experience it. Yeah, despite Legends Arceus already launching this year, Nintendo has confirmed that Pokemon Scarlet and Violet are set to launch in late 2022. And while there's no exact release date just yet, just beyond that window, it's really exciting to know that they're coming this year. Yeah, as is tradition with the core games in the series, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet will introduce us to new three Gen 9 starters that we can choose between at the beginning of the adventure. And as we saw at the end of the trailer, in a delightful picture surrounded by a golden frame, the three critters are all very adorable in their own way. The Pokemon Scarlet and Violet starters include the new Grass-type Cat, Sprigatito, the Fire-type Croc Coco, and the Water-type Duckling Quaxley. The official website for the game also revealed little tidbits about their characteristic. Coco, for example, is said to be laid back and does things at his own pace while the grass kitty is capricious and their little duckling is earnest and tidy. Now, there's only one question, who are you going to choose? So Pokemon Sword and Shield gave us the chance to run around certain wild areas, which was then expanded upon in Pokemon Legends Arceus. The latter release had several big open areas across a map to explore, but it still wasn't truly open world. Pokemon Scarlet and Violet looks set to take this an evolutionary step further, with an open world that features towns, that blend seamlessly into the wilderness with no borders. Yeah, we'll once again be able to see Pokemon out there in the wild with the freedom to explore this new region in the skies, the seas, the streets, and also the forests. And the trailer showed off various locales that we can't wait to see for ourselves. In the past, we've seen our real-world locations have served as an inspiration for regions in the series. The Galar region, for example, is based on the UK, while the Colossus region in Pokemon X and Y is inspired by France. So we're yet to learn officially where Scarlet and Violet are set, but there's a lot of interesting details that fans have been picking up on in the trailer that could hint towards it being based in Spain. In one Twitter thread by Antonio D'Amico, the architecture and the names of the starters are highlighted, among other details. 
So different versions are another returning tradition for the series, and historically they're going to offer different Pokemon and legendaries. Now, while Game Freak hasn't revealed much in the way of how Pokemon Scarlet and Violet will differ just yet in this regard, we do know that your player character will be sporting a different kind of outfit depending on the version that you choose. It's going to be interesting to learn what other Pokemon Scarlet and Violet differences there'll be, but we're just going to have to wait a little bit longer to find out for certain. Well, that is everything that we know about Pokemon Scarlet and Violet for the moment, and once again, thank you to Games Radar for that information. Well, that is it for all the information that we have at the moment about Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, but next up, let's have a look at what we've got coming out in the next few weeks. So first of all, on March the 9th, we got RPG Time, The Legend of Right. That's coming out on the Xbox Series S and X, Xbox One, PC, iOS and Android. Then on March the 10th, we've got a few games. We've got Ash Walkers coming to Nintendo Switch. We've got Aztec Forgotten Gods, that's PS5, Xbox Series S and X. PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. We've also got Chocobo GP coming to Nintendo Switch. And we've got Submerged Hidden Depths, that's PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One and PC. On March the 10th we've got Workshop Simulator, that's PS4, Xbox One and PC. And then we've got Young Souls, that's PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. Then on March the 11th we've got WWE 2K22, that's PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. Then on the 15th of March, we've got Grand Theft Auto 5 coming to PS5, Xbox Series S and X. Also on the 15th, we've got Phantom Breaker Omnia. That's coming to PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. Then on the 16th, we've got a good one. This is Tunic. That's coming to Xbox Series S and X, Xbox One, and PC. On the 17th, we've got Persona 4 Arena Ultimax. It's coming to PlayStation 4, Switch, and PC. And then finally, on March the 18th, we've got Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy Origin. That's PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and also PC. Well, that is it for this week's episode, and if you want to get involved in the show, then get in contact through patreon.com forward slash thisweekinvideogames or check out the latest on the website. That is www.thisweekinvideogames.com, and you can check out loads of guides, news, and also features there on This Week in Video Games on the web. Also, you can send in your questions, your comments, and your video game stories to the podcast. I'm always interested in hearing from you, and I'd love to read out your questions in more community features in the future. Well, thank you so much for watching or listening, and for more This Week in Video Games content like this. Like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Or you can check me out on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it useful, liking and sharing it would really help me out. Otherwise, check out the other podcasts in the feed. Well, thanks again, and I'll see you soon.